Hi, this is Josh Lawler of Zuber Lawler, a pioneer in legal innovation at the intersection of law and Web3 technology. You're tuned into the Edge of NFT, your go-to destination for unraveling the complexities of blockchain, NFTs, and emerging tech. Keep listening. Hey, Web3 Curious listeners, stay tuned for today's episode to learn why a securities lawyer got fascinated by blockchain and made it one of the focal points of his practice. And why you might want to reconsider jumping headfirst into starting or being part of a DAO. And finally, what makes the new ERC-404 standard different and a little bit complicated? It's a super interesting show today, so grab your popcorn as we cue the intro. Welcome to the Edge of NFT, the podcast that brings you the top 1% of Web3 today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts of the business side and also the human element of how Web3 is changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Welcome to the Edge of NFT, the podcast created by Jeff Kelly, Ethan Jenny, and Josh Krieger, featuring a variety of top-notch guests and other hosts like myself, Richard Carthon. It's another production of the Edge of Company, a quickly growing media ecosystem empowering the pioneers of Web3 tech and culture and responsible for other groundbreaking endeavors like the Outer Edge LA Innovation Festival. Today's sponsored episode features Josh Lawler, who is an attorney, counsel, and futurist with nearly 25 years in practice at Skadden Arps and, of course, Zuber Lawler. Well, Josh, uh, welcome to the show. Happy to have you here today. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's uh, good to see you virtually, Josh. Uh, we've got a chance to run into each other a lot lately, uh, not only at Future Blockchain Summit in Dubai, but recently at Satoshi Roundtable. Not to mention, of course, um, glad to have you as a member of Josh Dow. Oh, well, glad to be a member of Josh Dow also. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I don't know how many times we ran into each other last year at various events, uh, but, you know, really, uh, you're kind of being out there with Edge was instrumental in deciding that we wanted to work together. Appreciate that. And, um, you know, I really appreciate your insights and conversations around um, this evolving landscape. Um, I've learned a lot from you um, and excited to share some of these lessons learned with our audience as well. But to, to kick things off, you know, we were both at Satoshi Roundtable, which was pretty epic this year. Um, of course, we can't talk specifically about who said what, but we can highlight some of the themes that stood out. And I'm curious, what did stand out to you this time around? Mm, um, real world asset tokenization is a very real thing. And we're going to see more and more of that. Um, there is a disconnect between token issuing companies that also issue equity and the investors that invested them and the limited partners of those investors in terms of exactly what role the token plays and how to best capture value, which that was probably the biggest one. I think I probably saw that four or five times. Hmm. For me, uh, I, I was, you know, obviously Satoshi Roundtable, it has its essence and sort of the DNA of Bitcoin, but I was really intrigued by the the layers of sophisticated conversation around the building that's happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem right now. Um, projects like Babylon um, and some of the additional building happening with Stacks, of course, going from, uh, 
you know, the 10 to 15 minute time for Bitcoin transactions to five to 15 seconds uh, in a couple months with the Nakamoto upgrade. Um, I, I just, I, I was, there was a, a lot of like high, high intensity energy around the potential of Bitcoin to lead this next bull cycle that I didn't quite anticipate. Not sure if you've been to Satoshi before, if that's like a common thing or if that was specific to this year. Yeah, so I actually haven't been to Satoshi before, but it did occur to me that I need to say that nothing that I say is legal advice or investment advice, um, because that tripped me into saying, yeah, I think Bitcoin either crossed or came very close to crossing 50,000 a day. Um, so that's you know, kind of showing exactly what you're saying. Um, in terms of kind of what I saw, you obviously you go to the things that you're interested in. Um, I did see a lot of that that Bitcoin build and you know the stacks piece was interesting particularly because, um, you know, ordinals and, and Bitcoin use cases that are not just, you know, UTX medium of exchange are um, prevalent. The, you know, that's what the industry is pushing to generate traffic. And now a brief interlude from today's show so you can get ready to wave your magic wand with Cast Magic. Our team saved a ton of time and money using Cast Magic for our show, and the potential use cases are boundless for any company creating content. Imagine turning a single recording into a gold mine of engagement for any type of show, webinar, or other type of audio and or video content, whether it's short or long. With Cast Magic, you can save over 20 hours a week. No more tedious transcribing or brainstorming social media posts. Cast Magic does it all, generating show notes, summaries, blog posts, and even newsletters in minutes. Think of it as your content alchemist, transforming every audio or video into a treasure trove of valuable content. Want to experience the magic? Get a seven-day trial on us by going to bit.ly forward slash CastMagicReferral and join CastMagic's vibrant Slack community of over a thousand innovators. Don't just create, cast your magic with CastMagic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I just remember Josh coming back and being really fired up about Satoshi and everything with it. And it, it's cool that you come and give, you know, some of that insight as well to our listeners. But I want to kind of dive into a little bit what you just said about this not being legal advice or financial advice, but really getting to the core around, you know, law being a financial part of business and being a part of, of Web3 um, and emerging technologies like blockchain. But before we kind of get deeper into the legal side of things, I just want to dive a little bit more into like what brought you to this space? Like you could have gone in a lot of different directions. Why Web3? Well, you know, it, it helped that I've been a securities lawyer for as long as I have. Um, you know, I've been in Southern California surrounded by people who have been excited about this since 2009, 2010, many of whom made a lot of money in it. I did not. Um, I was, you know, back then and all the way through 2017, kind of a skeptic. Uh, but then when ICO mania hit, it became about securities law. I figured I needed to check things out just so I would understand. And when I started reading um, the tech pieces of it, you know, the consensus algorithms and use cases and things of that nature, um, you know, my, my brain just kind of exploded with it for a while. Um, and it's very easy to get passionate about because we're looking at a technology that changes what has been a fundamental human paradigm for thousands of years, which is the centralized ledger, of course. There used to be no other way to do it than a centralized ledger. Uh, but now here we are and there is. And that changes almost everything because uh, government regulates on centralized ledgers a lot. 
Yeah. Um, having that correlation, I think, into securities is, is definitely a big piece of this. And one of the drawbacks, unfortunately, of what we've been seeing is around like the evolution around Web3 moving faster United States. I've seen a lot of business and in, in things transpiring overseas just because of things kind of slowing down from a regulation standpoint after FTX and everything else that happened a couple of years back. Um, but a lot of things are kind of shaping up. And um, actually, I think there's like a couple of like regulatory like bodies that we can kind of speak on. Josh, I think you, you had a, a question on that. Yeah. So we've got bodies like the CFTC and SEC that are trying to navigate this these jurisdictional issues in uh, cases that are involving blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. How do these two bodies work together or in some cases not work together? And how does that sort of uh, impact your sort of approach to counsel in this area? Sure. So, yeah, there's a little bit of a turf war. Uh, between the two. So what, what you have to understand is that almost everything is a commodity and, you know, certain things are exempted out of the Commodity Exchange Act. Um, and, you know, securities as in just securities, not derivative securities is, is kind of one of those things that's exempted. And that kind of is a, a line that's drawn. Um, and then the other thing to realize is that the Commodity Exchange Act does not give the CFTC power to regulate spot markets very much. They can go in for fraud and market manipulation, but it's not something where they're regulating people who deal only in you know spot transactions. It's one of the reasons they went after Binance and went after BitMEX. There's like a lot of leverage and futures and things like that uh, there. So it was in their jurisdiction, but most things that are now in the United States are not. So I, I don't really think about the CFTC too much. Um, the SEC, the SEC I think about every day. Um, I, I, <laughs> care about them greatly, right? Um, they have been, a, you know, a colossal obstructionist, um, really, you know, first order doing everything that government is not supposed to do. Um, so yeah, there I said it. Um, and I think that they've kind of gotten their comeuppance recently in that the courts uh, have, you know, basically found correctly, thankfully, that they don't have jurisdiction in a number of the places that they've asserted jurisdiction. Um, and somebody is going to have to move in. Congress needs to put somebody in who is going to be able to regulate this because we do need regulation. We just we just need the right regulation. Is that does that mean that CFTC should have more regulatory power in your mind? Or are we talking about another entity? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, so the CFTC does not look at issuance and information of anything. So the idea that you're suddenly going to put with it, you know, a, you know, an entity, a DAO, a company, whatever it might be, and you're going to say, oh, send us all your information and periodically put out other information. That, that's just not what they do. And I think it would be pretty disastrous to try to get them to do that. Um, so I think we need something new. Um, if I was going to put it with anything existing, it would be actually the FTC, Federal Trade Commission because a lot of securities law is really consumer protection in the first place. Um, and that's who does consumer protection. You have questions about blockchain? Like how big of a block can you chain without throwing out your back? Or have you received that chain letter? How did you block it? 
And does blockchain taste better, barbecued or deep fried? <laughs> Luckily, you don't have to ponder these quandaries alone anymore because Blockchain Training Alliance is here to answer them and also train you in real world blockchain issues that will impact your business's bottom line and oriented future forward along the ley lines of the most important tech humanity has perfected since harnessing atomic energy. If you're into those sorts of things, Blockchain Training Alliance is a top leader in the field, counting among its clients IBM, Microsoft, Disney, Morgan Stanley, and many more, and offering a wide array of technical and non-technical courses. Whether you're a computer neophyte training for an incredible career in this new space, or a coding expert honing your skills, Blockchain Training Alliance will help you steer your ship home safely, filled with treasure. <laughs> Arg. So hurry and sign up for the Blockchain Training Alliance course that best fits your needs at blockchaintrainingalliance.com. Use discount code EDGEOF for 50% off and start your next block today. Yeah, that's a really interesting take. And I think we could spend a lot of time on that. But I, I first want to go back and revisit uh, your friends over at the SEC. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, recently the SEC approved the Bitcoin ETF, uh, which took a lot of time, um, but it has paused the Ethereum ETF, and even is going as far as to try to make the claim that ETH can be considered a security. Um, how do you see this evolving um, as cryptocurrency and, and Web3 continues to evolve? Got it. Well, you know, to start with, you're probably going to see a result in the next presidential election before you see anything happen with the ETH ETF. Um, the Bitcoin ETFs, as you mentioned, they delayed. I mean, they delayed for years. I mean, I think six years or something like that since the initial ETF application. Um, and they got to a point where Congress was telling them, you have to act. The courts were telling them, you have to act. They really had a lot of pressure on them to do something. And then you have the other element, which is Bitcoin is the only digital asset that they've come out and said, this is not a security. Um, now, that doesn't mean an ETF based on it isn't a security, but it does make it kind of a little bit different than everything else. They also had to deal with the fact that, you know, you already had grayscale Bitcoin trust out there for people to get exposure, except it was a lot more expensive to get exposure through that than it would be through an ETF, which for anybody who is listening, it's still more expensive than just buying the Bitcoin yourself. But that's its own thing, which was not financial advice, to be clear. Um, so, you know, ETH is going to take time. Um, and if we get a Republican, let me put this a different way. If we get a non-democratic uh, or non Democrat, definitely Democratic, but a non-Democrat president, then you might see faster approvals there. Um, if we stay with kind of the same administration we have, uh, it's going to continue to be thick. Yeah, it's been interesting to see how the political landscape of this and, and what action is being taken for Web3 to become a little bit more uh accepted and, and utilized and even between congress between bitcoin mining and uh just how crypto is widely used but one of the things as being a part of this like you said it took six years for this to come through and, and people are really amped up about ethereum but the, the the whole whether or not a security piece i think will be very critical in uh how this continues to pan out and and, and play out but you know, what are what are some other recent precedents or legal rulings that you think are starting to shape some regulatory landscape for blockchain? In the sure. So I don't know that I'd call it recent anymore, but the the Ripple ruling and you know the appeal hasn't been ruled upon yet. 
um, that, you know, that was an earthquake to the entire U.S. industry and really the world um, because, you know, it, it changed the landscape by providing some guidance in terms of, you know, what you can and what you can't do. Um, and, you know, I think the court mostly got it right, um, but, you know, the SEC is appealing, so we have to kind of wait for, for that to happen. And for anybody who kind of understands this stuff, it, it basically would mean that, you know, you only have to deal with whether you're a security in the actual initial investment contract. So when the project sells the token or SAFT, there's an implicit kind of promise that says, we're going to push this, you know, use case and demand to make this jump. Um, but um, if it's a secondary sale, uh, which means it's not that initial sale, it's something on an exchange, for instance, or even if the buyer doesn't know it's coming from the issuer, which was really big, and that's, you know, Ripple's, you know, 1% of market volume programmatic sale, um, you know, in, through uh, Coinbase, um, that, that's, you know, that's, that's huge, because, I mean, that actually ends the 34 Act uh, in terms of looking at Coinbase, Kraken, et cetera, as exchanges. That's that's just massive. The other one that I think maybe slipped under the wire a little bit um, is the um, the one with OKDAO, uh, which is where a court, um, it wasn't a final decision, but on a motion to dismiss, decided that all of the holders of the DAO Gov token could conceivably be jointly and severally liable for a $55 million hack if, if they found that there was negligence. And that really should send, you know, a massive warning to everybody who's kind of forming their DAO without any kind of an entity, without any kind of thought in terms of legal for how do we execute on the protocol votes. Um, it, it's a big deal. Um, and, you know, it needs to be thought of. The, the government's answer to there's nobody there is never going to be positive. Um, so that was you know, certainly one of the one of the biggest ones. And I could go on for a long time. So <laughs> I will if you want me to. Yeah, I mean, DAOs are a strange and wonderful thing. You know, I remember when that DAO came out to to buy Blockbuster a few years ago. And, um, you know, there's the DAO that tried to, to buy the Constitution. And, and then I guess they, they lost, but then they bought it after the fact. I'm, 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 I'm vaguely familiar with that one at this point. But I, I that'll be something we should get into um, on this on the show. But let's start. By, by talking a little bit more about tokenomics, because you mentioned this was sort of a key part of Satoshi Roundtable. And it's, it's always on my mind because I, I, it feels like one of those areas where everything's at odds. You, you want sort of tokenomics that work for the long-term of the ecosystem, but it's gotta work for the VCs. It's gotta work for the founders. It's gotta work for the early sort of um, folks that get excited and sort of nurture that economy. Um, and that whole sort of balance is, is difficult, I would say. And in, in, in thus far, I don't think too many people have got it right. So I'm really curious, how do you look at sort of that balance, um, both from a regulatory compliance perspective, as well as sort of an innovation and sort of competitive advantage perspective with, with token projects and when you're talking to founders that are sort of grappling with this impossible enigma, um, what is some of your sort of advice you give them in creating a sustainable token economy? Oh my gosh. Um, so that was a mouthful and it's going to generate a mouthful. First off, the, the main advice that I give absolutely all my clients is don't rip anybody off and don't give them enough rope to hang themselves. 
And if you do that, you're, you're ahead of the game <laughs> compared to, to many. On the tokenomics front, it's, you know, it's one of those words that I don't think everybody even means the same thing when they say it. So, you know, just to kind of clarify, the way I tend to think of it is very much the way the Fed manipulates an economy. Is there a DAO, a project, somebody, or a protocol for that matter, manipulating the token economy, the whole token economy? I think of that as tokenomics. Um, a lot of folks who are particularly investment oriented, they just look at who's getting the initial tokens. Um, and it, you know, it might be some percentage to team, some percentage goes to investors, some percent goes to community participants or, you know, um, key influencers, that type of thing. Um, but you know, what they need to kind of understand is that all of that is subservient to managing the ecosystem or else there will be no ecosystem. There will be no value. Um, and you know, one of the problems that we've got is that a lot of Folks feel like 2017 was a good thing. And, you know, you can buy things at a discount and 30 days later, immediately sell them for, you know, market price. And it's going to drive everything down really far, but it doesn't matter because everybody's spending money. Um, Cause you know, who doesn't like a fast return? Um, and, you know, the investors are looking at, you know, equity. Okay. It's going to be a while till we see anything. It's got to be an exit, but the tokens, we can get a return on the tokens, but it's, it's not really that easy because if they all dump the tokens and if the team dumps the tokens, you've got no value and there's no liquidity in the market and all kinds of things of that nature. So it's really important um, for folks who are, you know, getting money to get money from people who understand, you know, lockups and releases and timing and things like that. And who will really look, particularly if it's a protocol, really look at the protocol to understand how it manages inflation and deflation and how their, you know, their actions are going to potentially affect things. Hello again, Web3 Curious listeners. If you're tuning into our podcast, we'd love for you to connect with us on our social media channels. Let us know what aspects of the show you love and what or who you're eager to hear more about. Your insights help us refine the show and bring you the topics and guests that matter most to you. Thanks for sticking with us. Back to the episode. That makes sense. So, um, when when your clients are, are coming to you though in, in in sort of grappling with with this it sounds like you're sort of asking them to look beyond their their primary sort of buckets per se of, of how they're dividing the tokens and looking at sort of the inputs and outputs of their token economy and how to make sure that that works is that is that is that sort of a fair statement yeah it, it's it's half fair i guess is the thing um you know i'm not designing their, their tokenomics for them. Um, you know, usually somebody comes to me and it's because they either want to issue a token, usually outside the United States, or they want to take in funds and there's a token element to those funds. And, you know, my, one of our roles at that point is to just look at what they're proposing doing. What does the term sheet say? And look at the white paper and talk to the founders and figure out, are you going to run into a lot of trouble down the line? Um, and that's kind of a, very important thing in this particular area, which I think a lot of lawyers kind of forget because it's not really legal. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what that is, but it's not really legal work. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you can't set your client up to fail. Um, that, that's just, you know, that's bad business. Yeah. Well, one of the things that is happening is making sure that or there should be happening uh, as a lawyer is, is compliance. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, you you have made some content uh, in the past uh, with educational 
Um, and, and one of the things you recently discussed was the Corporate Transparency Act. Uh, can you kind of tell us more about it and like how does this affect crypto businesses? Ooh, absolutely. So the Corporate Transparency Act is actually any business, any entity that files to do business in the United States, whether it's you know incorporated or an LLC, uh, or if it's you know just a foreign company that comes in and you know qualifies to do business by filing in a particular state where it's got you know a bunch of revenue coming from or employees or what have you, every single business has to either file or be exempted. And there's 23 or so exemptions that cover things like public companies and insurance companies and broker dealers and basically the main companies you think of who are already regulated. And then it also has an exemption for what it calls, quote, large operating companies, which means that you've got, you know, north of $10 million of uh, gross revenue on your prior tax return. You've got 20 employees at least, and you've got a physical location in the United States. And the logic kind of makes sense in the sense that those are clearly not shell companies, so they're not as much of a risk of you know, being money laundering going through them. Um, in practice, it's a lot more difficult than that to kind of analyze it. But for the crypto industry, and I'll say the Web3 industry, because and it, it's really for all industries, but, you know, this is what we're looking at. You know, if you've got your, your entity and, you know, it's formed here or filed here, um, you've got to comply with this thing. And it's not hard to comply, but it does require disclosing to the government who your investors are. And if your investors, particularly if your investors are non-U.S. tax residents, they may not like that so much. Um, and you need information from them or else you can't do it. You need, you know, the equivalent of a passport. You need, you know, a photo. You need to have their address. Um, you should have that stuff, the address piece anyways. And, you know, it's nothing that's not part of KYC. But filing it with the U.S. government is an entirely different thing. And I don't think we've really heard the uproar from that yet, um, but we will. Uh, and meanwhile... For anybody who does this type of investing, you can do everybody a favor and get a FinCEN ID number so that you can keep it updated yourself and they just have to give you a number. Yeah, I think that's a really good reminder. Um, as people are getting into crypto, of course, there have been people out there who have decided to uh, take on funds or in investors and some have had large success, uh, but they don't necessarily have the compliance that you just described. So I think this is a good gentle reminder. And I think, you know, as a follow-up to that, you know, how how can businesses like take active steps to make sure that they are are not just compliant in this but are are being cognizant of of you know just being in, in i guess general compliance with potentially doing that type of business here in the states right so i mean i recognize that very you know startup type projects can't necessarily afford legal um, but really, as soon as you can get legal involved and get legal that knows what they're doing in the space involved um, so that, you know, somebody can help you through this stuff, because it, it's so easy to fall into a compliance trap. It's so easy to fall into a bad tax structure. Um, you know, that's when when we had a, when we had the most recent bear, you know, coming off the NFT sales. If you were an NFT project and you'd sold out, you know, 10,000 tokens and you were paid, you know, one ETH in all of them. Um, and at the time ETH was, you know, $4,500. And then, you know, three months later, ETH is, you know, $1,500. And the government still wants the income as if you made $4,500. That's a big problem. Uh, we had some clients that had that issue. Um, and, you, you know, you wouldn't think of that when you're happily designing, you know, your generative NFT uh, art. 
So what do you, what do you do at that point, or is it too late? Um, yeah. So engaging you know us or somebody like us is really a good move. Um, you are going to well. I'll give a little bit of the secrets away, I suppose. You are going to work really hard to figure out how to get your expenses that you actually spent legally um, to kind of also move up to you know a level of you know the magnitude that helps a little bit. And also, you know, honestly, you might just have to prepare to take it on the chin. Um, you know, tax is tax. Um, not a huge fan of it, but it is what it is. Understood. Well, let's go back to DAOs, um, which I, I wanted to, to allude to as a, a future topic, and now we're here. So um, we talked a little bit about some of the challenges of DAOs and, and the legal precedences, um, and your firm has spoken on um, OK DAO tokens and the concerns about the constitutionality of the serving process via chatbot. Uh, can you speak more to this particular example and, and just more generally to to DAOs in terms of what you see as the potential and the risk? Yeah, that's another topic that could cover, you know, the whole time that we're here. Um, so, you know, what you really got initially was uh, a subpoena was served in a case in New York. I, I forget the name of the case. And the judge basically said, okay, um, you don't know where this person is. You don't know who this person is, but you do know who their wallet, you know, what their wallet address is. So we're going to let you send a subpoena. Uh, by that. Never mind how they would enforce it, because I don't know. Um, but nonetheless, they, they did that. The government kind of leaned on that, which was fairly reasonable in my mind, to decide, okay, we, okay, down, right, okay, X, we're going to serve process for a complaint like that. And they convinced a judge to let them do it when, you know, there was nobody there representing the Dow, certainly. Um, so, you know, in my mind, they maybe hoodwink this judge a little bit, but the judge let them serve process to everybody who was holding, you know, a, a gov token. Um, now, as you mentioned that, you know, our constitution has the fourth amendment, which requires due process of law before the government can take anything from you. And the whole reason why, you know, service of a complaint has to be, you know, personal usually, unless you acknowledge it, is to comply with that. You know, you're not supposed to be able to drop it in the mailbox and just assume it got there. Um, but, you know, that, that's exactly what the government did. And, you know, more so they dropped it in a mailbox that many people wouldn't even be looking at anymore or don't look at very frequently or whatever it's going to be. Um, so, yeah, I think that one was a was a no, no. Yeah, makes sense. And just, you know, touching well, on sort of you talked about the challenges of DAOs. Is there anything that get you excited when it comes to DAOs and the potential and use cases of DAOs that you're you're sort of looking forward to? Yeah, sure. And thank you. I didn't answer half of your last question. So we'll, <laughs> we'll get that going. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that are interesting about, about DAOs. Um, there is no other methodology that I'm aware of that can as quickly and easily kind of unite for a common goal, disparate people anonymously all over the planet. And that, that's insanely cool. So yes, exciting, very exciting. Um, the catch is that as an entity, you can't do anything unless you are recognized by the sovereign of wherever you happen to be. So, you know, you can't, if you're just a DAO, no entity forms, you can't contract, you can't employ anybody, you can't really do anything. And if you try to, 
a court is going to do like what they did in the okay now case, which is okay X case and keep doing that, uh, which is to say, oh, you're a general partnership because that's what you are if more than one person does something together. Um, and that's a horrible thing to be because you're jointly and severally liable for absolutely everything that everybody does. And it doesn't work in this context either. Um, so, you know, there's no perfect solve yet. Um, there are a few attempts. Um, you know, one of them, obviously, you know, a number of states have decided that they've got their DAO entity and the DAO entity stuff. It's it's not really there in my mind because you're not autonomous if you're you know recognized by a sovereign. The sovereign can say you didn't pay your franchise taxes. We're going to take your your charter and we're going to say you're not in good standing. You can't do anything anymore. You can't go to court. That, that's not an autonomous organization. Um, now, that said, uh, what you can do um, is you can form what we call an execution entity someplace. It doesn't have to be in the United States. Um, oftentimes, it can be a nonprofit, and that's a good idea, so nobody actually owns it. And you burn into its constitution that it is going to, subject to applicable law, slavishly follow everything that the DAO votes on. Um, and that it's going to do the execution because then it can employ people, it can sue, it can pay out funds, all that kind of good stuff. Um, but you've got one problem, which is what if that entity goes across the goes off the rails? Um, and our solve for that one is just to uh, also burn into the Constitution something that says if we go off the rails and somebody needs to sue us, we're going to waive any argument of standing or jurisdiction for somebody who comes in because the DAO voted them in to to enforce. Um, and I think that that's a pretty good check, but it's a lot of heavy lifting. Um, you know, it's it's me legal engineering this thing. Uh, so there's plenty of time for us to come up with alternative structures, and I'm sure we will. Yeah, I think so, so as well. But I, I I think that's a really good reminder for people who are looking at this from like there's the altruistic like uh, autonomous and like feel good reason of like why DAOs make a lot of sense and why. It, why you would want to form one, but it doesn't mean that it legally stands up in court uh, in right. states. Um, and so you need to be able to put things in place. And I think this is a good reminder for, for people who are a part of these things to start thinking through that and, and really start to, you know, get in compliance and, and, and figure out how they can legally protect themselves and, and uplift like the whole goal of the DAO uh, of being set up in, in the first place. Um, I, I but, think what you're saying, Richard, is, is it, it should be a really conscious uh, thought out process of deciding to create a DAO. It's not one of those things where you wake up in the morning and go, oh, like we all care about this. Let's just go create a DAO, um, you know, because there's a lot of implications of, of doing so that need to be thought through. Right. Yeah. Although definitely. You, you, you just give me a vision of like, you know, my, my daughter who's in middle school having all the students, members of the DAO that decides, you know, what color the mascot's going to be this year. You can do that. That's okay. Yeah, so many great uh, use cases, but you know, as we evolve, well, we gotta... one, by the way, but it can happen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, as we kind of wrap up this 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 segment before we head into the next, uh, I want to go back to NFTs just for a second. So you know, you brought up a, a consideration that people need to be like wary of, of, of like you know, you you, you do your initial uh, NFT drop, and at the time it was forty five, and then. By the time it's time to do taxes, it's down to 15. Like, what does that mean? So that's a consideration. But like, what are some other uh, considerations around the NFT economy that you think people should be aware of? And as a secondary question, you know, what are some use cases that you're excited about? Sure. Um, so 
That's it's, it's difficult because it's so broad. Um, one thing I want to get away from is the idea that NFTs are, you know, JPEGs that maybe come along with intellectual property rights if the terms and conditions say they do. What an NFT really is, is, you know, as the court and Ripple noticed, it's a snippet of software code. That court wasn't dealing with NFTs, but that's what they were saying about tokens in general. So, you know, as a snippet of software code, it's really media. And the question isn't how do we deal with the NFT? The question is how do we deal with the asset that is represented by the NFT? The same way, you know, you wouldn't ask, you know, how do I deal with a piece of paper? You'd say, okay, what does this paper represent? And that's what we have to regulate. Um, so, you know, yeah. when you look at things from that perspective, you know, the use cases are infinite. You've got this new form of media that can represent something that can also serve as a key that allows you to execute something that can also serve as a key that allows you to access data that's feeding in. Um, and you can combine all of those. And if you want to, you can even have another use case and multiple use cases. And there's no wonder that the law has trouble dealing with this. Um, and it does, um, you know, in terms of use cases, I'm excited by, um, I'm really right now, very excited by NFTs that key to particular, um, internet of things devices. Uh, so, you know, if you've got a cow and your cow is being shipped from South America to North America, and you put a geospatial location tag on its ear, this stream of data coming from that tag can be accessed by, you know, anybody who's got access to this particular NFT. Um, and that's really interesting. If I'm a lender, I can now, you know, collateralize based on that and see it. If I'm an insurance company, you know, that NFT that is keyed into the cow that might also have its veterinary records so that if the boat the cow is on sinks, sorry, cow, um, the insurance company knows whether it's paying a claim or not. So that's one use case. Um, you know, the art use cases obviously are there. And as much as it's taken a beating, I like the fact that art has been democratized and that you don't really need to live in a major city anymore uh, to get attention. And that may not be a perfectly true statement, but it's kind of on the way there. So that, that piece I think is huge. Um, beyond that piece of it, you know, the, there's a lot of financial use cases, uh, and my suspicion is NFTs will replace paper. So you can think of all that, that kind of includes. Bill, that's a big yeah. statement. We're not going to unpack yeah. all that, but wow, that's a, that's a big one. I like that. I haven't heard someone say that before. So yeah, I shouldn't say replace paper because there's no substitute for seeing what you wrote in notes and things of that nature, but, but yeah. 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 That. It's good stuff, Josh, and, um, you know, really appreciate your perspective on all this. Uh, you know, as you alluded to, we could talk about any of these topics uh, for quite a long time. We didn't even really get into AI, which is a whole other can of worms, but there'll be more times for us to uh, have these conversations and unpack all of this interesting stuff. And I'm sure when we look back at, at this year, there'll be some new precedents and legal cases to, to talk about that haven't even come up yet. So. Um, appreciate the opportunity to unpack some of this uh, world of legal and NFTs and tokens, but we also want to get to know you better. So let's move on to our next segment. NFTLA returns as an inclusive week of community events throughout LA, celebrating the outer edge of innovation. Builders be building. There's so much energy colliding around gaming, AI, generative art, the metaverse, decentralized social, and the future of entertainment. If you want to be in the mix, including the official free NFTLA celebration, visit outeredge.live. 
to subscribe for your updates in RSVP. All right, it's time for Edge Quick Hitters, which is a fun, quick way to get to know you a little bit better. There are 10 questions, and we're looking for just a short, single, or few-word response, but feel free to expand if you get the urge. You ready? I feel like I should have changed my shirt. Uh, yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> just just make sure you have enough deodorant, that's all. Yeah. All right. Um, what is the first thing you remember ever purchasing in your life? Hard candy. That's a common one. Um, did you buy that with your allowance or did you did you wheel and deal to, to get the money? I probably found the change that paid for that. I'm going to guess that that's me finding, you know, a nickel or a quarter or something on the street because back then that's what it costs. And there's a lot of that. Very resourceful young buck. So what is the first thing you remember ever selling in your life? Oh, I don't know that I could call it selling newspapers by having a paper because they really weren't mine. Um, oh, I think I sold somebody. Oh, I like, all right. So I grew up in the 70s, so things are not what they are now. So I think I sold somebody a keychain with a rabbit's foot on it um, in, in second grade for, you know, something minimal. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure what. Um, obviously, we don't make rabbit's foot keychains anymore. It's a disgusting thing in this context. But, you know, back then, we didn't know any better. Noted. Giving the people good luck. All right. Um, <laughs> or so they say. <laughs> well, um, what is the most recent thing you purchased? Oh, um, wow. I almost feel like I need to look on my Amazon account to see. What, oh, 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 you guys are going to love this one. A gray leotard. The reason oh, we need a backstory. Yeah, no, you absolutely do. Um, so my, my daughter has a role in her class play as a mouse, um, and she needed to have a gray leotard. So, um, you know, we went hunting for one of those this weekend, and they're not that easy to find, actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was the one. That's but awesome. To your, to your point, about 99% of what you need in life, you can buy on Amazon now. So, but, but this wasn't an Amazon purchase? No, it was not. Um, you know, you've got a sizing issue with, you know, my my daughter. You've got the fact that, you know, I didn't think it was going to be that hard when I first left. Like, you know, first stop was Target. Nope. Second stop was like Walmart. Nope. Dicks. Nope. Okay. Finally, I like wised up and, you know, called the Google assistant and said, where can I buy leotards and got like a dance special specialty shop. Um, which um, is getting to be a rarity, you know, I'll mention, you know, they no longer take credit cards because business is thin enough that they just can't afford the merchant fee, which is just wow. extremely sad. Yeah, goodness. Um, that is very interesting. Well, going back to your resourcefulness, finding a way to, to, to get your daughter that leotard, uh, but also unfortunate to hear about the, the, the merchant fee. Hey, another use case for crypto. All I'm saying, you're, you're oh, just helping to prove the point. Yeah. To be clear, it absolutely is. Um, I was thinking about it the entire time I was in that store, and I was like, "What is it gonna take this person comfortable enough that she would put the entire financial piece onto onto a blockchain and work through a wallet?" Because uh, that's that's you know that's one of the places we need to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, what is the most recent thing that you've sold? Girl Scout cookies. 
Nice. So what is your favorite Girl Scout cookie? Oh, um, I'd say the, the, all right. So if you freeze the Thin Mints and you break it in half and drop it into a martini, it's awesome. So I'm going to go with Thin Mints on that one. Nice. There That's the first go. time I've heard that one. What is your most prized possession, Josh? Mm. Prize possession, I've got a X-Men number one uh, that I bought in 1980-whatever for $200 on the layaway plan that, along with the rest of my comic collection, has migrated with me. I know it's like super juvenile, but it is what it is. Um, and that that probably would be you know number one as far as prize possession. Certainly, it's kind of my most valuable possession at this point in time. I got to say, I'm a big Wolverine fan. I, I've got Hulk 181 also. Nice. That's that's, yeah, that's first Wolverine. for anybody for the listeners. That's the first appearance of Wolverine, other than the shadow of him. One eighty. So, all right. Yeah. No, it's going. awesome. A lot of a lot of our uh, audience is going to be able to connect with that. Someone's going to vibe like, yes, this guy gets it. Um, Josh, so if you could buy anything in the world, digital, physical, service, or experience that's currently for sale, what would it be? Mm, that is a extremely difficult question. Um, you know, it would probably, and this is going to sound super goofy, um, but you know, I'm, I'm 53 years old, so it's kind of the right timing. I would probably buy just the complete thorough, don't miss anything medical exam, uh, which, you know, is not what your insurance gets for you and is, you know, multi thousands of dollars to do that. that that's kind of the thing that's kind of on my mind right now. Most. Nice. All right. So for the next question, if you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would it be? Mm. So I have two kids, so I'm trying to do that. Um, you know, I'm going to, there's you know, fortunately a lot of choices. I'd say resourcefulness would be the first one. Um, you know, and I could go on for an hour also about, you know, parenting in 2024. But one of the big things is, you know, teaching the kids to keep going and keep doing something, even if they fail at it, or, you know, even if they forgot whatever tool it is that they need or whatever it is, you know, life goes on and you have to keep going. Um, I think that that's maybe a little bit of a lost art. So that would probably be it. Yeah, it's a big one. Um, unfortunately, uh, social media has definitely given the instant gratificationness of things and even the gamification of like current games of instant gratification is, is, teaching the current generation to not deal with adversity and having to keep pushing through. Um, so I, I feel you on that one. That's definitely a, a challenging one. Um, oh. On the flip side, if you could remove or eliminate one of your personality traits for the next generation, what would that be? So I'm a big proponent of the idea that everything happens for a reason. So that's a, that's a very, difficult question, uh, because I don't know that I would actually remove anything, even the stuff that I really don't like about myself. Um, but putting that aside, um, you know, I, I would take away the procrastination in a heartbeat. Um, that's, that's the one that, that gets me like, and it, it's not because I don't want to do stuff. It's because, and I've realized this, it's exciting to me to come up against a deadline. Like that's it. It doesn't matter how much time you give me because it's actually the deadline that's causing the procrastination. If the deadline's not coming, I'm not getting, you know, my, my dopamine hit. Um, so 
procrastination is kind of a big deal for me. The way yeah. you describe that, you literally just describe my wife. So like, I'm literally, when this goes live, I'm going to send this to her and be like, this is you. So thank you. Like, that is awesome. Basically, both Josh and your wife are adrenaline junkies is what it comes down to. <laughs> and, and, and that's like the nice way of like complimenting a procrastinator. I, I, I'm going to use that in the future as well. This is eye opening. All right. Happy I can help. Josh, ninth question, a little bit easier. What did you do just before joining us on the podcast? Well, I probably took a handful of mixed nuts and I ate that. I think that that's probably exactly what I did. Nice. And last question, what are you going to do next after the podcast? Uh, let's see, 233. Um, legal work, most likely. I think I've got an appointment with a client <laughs> that I need to help through. Um, very popular uh, Web3 game company, actually. Cool. Web3 Gaming is uh, on the rise. So um, thanks for uh, contributing to, to that progress. It's a really exciting area that we talk about on the show a lot. Yeah, I have a very dull life, though. So <laughs> it's like, what have I done? I've puttered about the house. Woo! <laughs> well, well, we always um, do like to finish with a fun bonus question. Um, but uh, the one that I kind of want to frame this way, because we don't get to talk to lawyers all the time. What is your most memorable case that you can talk about? Okay, so I, I don't really do cases, I do transactions, but I'll, I'll assume that you're talking about, you know, whatever matter uh, it happens yes. to be. And that's also a really hard question um, because I've been doing this for 29 years. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of things that I've really enjoyed um, and a lot of things that have been just amazing experiences or in some cases, just extremely strange experiences. Um, I would say that some of the stuff that I'm doing right now for one of our protocol clients, and I don't want to get into which one, but nobody would have heard of them at this point anyways, because they haven't released, um, probably, probably hits it. Um, I've been working with this team for six years, um, they haven't released, but you know, what they've got is just amazing as far as, you know, use of blockchain for transactions per second and also for, you know, allowing some functionality that like a horrible answer. I'm sorry, but like <laughs> that, that would be it. Um, I can take another shot at answering this if you like and not do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, if that's your most memorable, by, by all means, but all right, well, if you all, right. Memor all right. So memorable, I didn't even go to memorable. Um, memorable was probably a family law case that I did when I came right out of law school. Um, between, you know, uh, one uh, person, our client, uh, and, uh, and his wife, obviously, and he was trying to divorce her in another country before she could divorce him in California. Uh, and we went into court one day and, you know, it was emotion yeah. and, you know, the partner who was with me gave his version of the facts and she, I kid you not, stood up in the gallery and yelled, liar! And almost <laughs> contempt of court. And that, that was certainly memorable. Yeah. I, I don't know how you forget that one. That's hilarious. Well, um, thanks, Josh, for, for sharing a little bit more about yourself. And, um, you know, I feel like I, I've known you a while, but I feel like I know you even that much better now. Hi. We love having listeners like you because you're not only generous, but you're smart and you want to maximize the impact of your generosity. Donating money to help people can be a wonderful and selfless act. 
But how can you feel confident that your donations are improving or saving lives effectively? You could do weeks of research to find the charities that are out there, programs that they run, how effective those programs are, and how the charity might use your money. Or you could visit GiveWell.org. There, you'll get a short vetted list of the best charities they've found at saving or improving lives per dollar. GiveWell spends over 20,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest impact evidence-backed charities they've found. Here's an example of how we at Edge of NFT make our charitable contributions go super far. Quick search on GiveWell's website, found their Maximum Impact Fund, clicked Donate, sent crypto to their address, done. Their Maximum Impact Fund distributes quarterly to the charities that they believe will do the most good. GiveWell accepts a broad variety of popular tokens and provides a simple way to document your donation. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $250 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. To claim your match, go to GiveWell.org and pick Podcast and enter Edge of NFT at checkout. Make sure they know you heard about GiveWell from Edge of NFT to get your donation matched. That much better, you know, I'll have to turn the tables at some point when we're at some some event and just kind of like, well, Mr. Krieger. <laughs> this, is, this is the, yeah, this is the challenge of uh, putting a, a lawyer under uh, the, the sort of edge quick hitter scrutiny because um, I, I, I know that you can uh, get back to me at some point, but that's fine. I'll be ready. Um, in the meantime, we have one more segment before we adjourn for the day, which is going to be Hot Topic. Okay. Hot topic. So we don't always have time for covering hot topics, but this one is just too hot to not talk about. And that is the ERC 404 standard that has emerged as an unofficial token standard. Um, and the origin story and implications have been unveiled. So um, according to milkroad.com, the ERC-404 has infiltrated the crypto landscape, originating from a tumultuous crypto project called Emerald. It now powers uh, Pandora, which is blending fungible and non-fungible tokens. And it's been hailed for its innovation and also caution um, amidst its experimental nature and susceptibility to scams. And I have to say, I was at coffee with some crypto folks on, on Sunday, and it was the only thing everyone could talk about. Um, and there's been a lot of forks and, and sort of everyone's like first to launch on different chains. But would love sort of your opinion, Josh, how, what is this ERC-404 all about and how does it differ from existing token standards? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, you kind of tagged what it's about is that you can have an NFT that uh, has its own kind of fungible token kind of segments. And there's, uh, you know, also another one that has just come to light called Cellmate that, you know, does something similar, but in a different way that allows multiple people to own the same NFT. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm an evangelist of technology in general, this technology particularly. So somebody developed something new and that's really cool. I don't know what the applications are going to be yet, but I do know that our government will not be ready for them. Um, and, you know, my take on it is be careful, um, recognize, you know, what you are doing, not the technology, but the underlying use case, what you're doing and such um, can have real repercussions. So, you know, like, like most things, my first reaction is kind of like, um, but, uh, you know, it'll, it'll, I'm sure, develop into the right use cases and, and boil out. 
Um, I mean, it's neat to be sure. No question. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this idea of being able to sort of share ownership has been something that blockchain has tried to achieve for, for quite some time. We've talked about sort of artists, you know, cooperating on a piece and how do they co-own the royalties that come out of that as one use case. And, you know, this is exciting to people. It sort of thinks, you know, you, you think about sort of shared ownership of, of property and how complicated that is in society. And I think um, I think what you're getting at is that, yeah, you peel back the onion here and it's just as complicated when, when you're talking about blockchain. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and for this one, I mean, shared access is really one of the items. So, you know, imagine you're an artist and you're fighting the copyright wars on artificial intelligence and probably going to lose those. And you're, you know, using your NFTs to, to sell things. Um, but the new standard becomes that, you know, it, it's got to be 100 copies because that's what people want. So everybody owns the same NFT and you've sold that. But, um, you know, you're not able to have the same kind of scarcity that you had used to have. That's one you know issue. By the way, each of those hundred. Wow. Each of those hundred copies, if you sold it the wrong way, might be a security even though it's the same NFT. So for anybody who's thinking that, you know, digital assets are securities, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't quite work that way. Richard, any, any thoughts so far on the 404? I know we're all just digesting it in real time. Yeah, it's a, a really good digital reminder and, and great timing to speak with Josh about this, about like as awesome as like technology is and like new innovations and everything else. Um, there's always like a legal side to this and like, how many times are people really not even like really starting with that of like the approach of like okay well how do we do this make this really awesome and be uh, compliant and mm -hmm. i just to your point like i wouldn't even thought like that's not a first thought that's like a like a 10th or 11th or 12th thought yeah about that and, and like and by the time right. a lot of people who are hearing this right now they're like oh my gosh i'm gonna go do this really cool thing and then they're 10 steps deep they're like oh no what did i just do and, right yeah, yeah, it's a boring and annoying thought is the problem. <laughs> um, but uh, nonetheless, it's a, it's a thought, you know, to, to that effect, I, you know, I, I kind of have to go back to what I said before, what I tell my clients, don't rip anybody off and don't give them enough rope to hang themselves because, you know, it's very easy to trample the letter of the law. But if you're upholding kind of the standards, you're not going to have much in the way of damages. You're not going to be a big, a big target uh, for folks. You know, law cannot keep up with technology. I mean, that is a fact, at least the way we currently legislate. So there's always going to be stuff that is not quite illegal, uh, but is immoral that people are going to be able to do on the edges. And I think, you know, one of the things is we really need to police our own community in terms of not having people do bad stuff. Um, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but like there's always going to be bad stuff you can do that's not quite going to be illegal yet. Just just don't do bad stuff. Yeah. Well, well said, Josh, and um, thanks for sort of uh, shining the light on this new 404 standard. It's definitely going to be uh, something that we all talk about uh, a lot over the next few months, um, because like like other technology that's emerging, once it's here, it's here, and, and now we just have to figure out what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. No, East Denver is in a few weeks, and I am sure that it will be quite the frequent topic. Well, um, yeah. So one last thing, um, and we can talk a little bit about ETH Denver. We'll be there too. That it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, besides the the short the shopkeeper that's selling gray uh, leotards for for your daughter's recital, 
Um, is there anyone you want to shout out in your world that that maybe doesn't get enough attention um, on the airwaves, but has had sort of an impact on you? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of one of the principal of one of my clients, a guy named Chris McCoy, uh, who is an absolute software genius, um, and he was the guy who first told me that it wasn't that everybody else understood, didn't understand it. It was, was that I did another, that that's the guy who kind of pointed me in the direction of, I can be special at this. So shout out to Chris McCoy, uh, and store labs, um, big time. Um, I have a lot of clients that I really like a lot and I don't want to shout out to any other ones because I don't want the ones I don't shout out to get really mad at me. Um, I'd like to thank my mother, uh, and my cat pumpkin. There, there we go. And, um, yeah, if you're one of Josh's clients, then just pretend uh, that he shouted you out on this episode because he cares about all of you equally. Sure. So, um, Josh, this has been so much fun and uh, excited about the segment we're going to have in our newsletter where uh, folks can learn a little bit more about different nuances of, of blockchain law. But uh, besides sort of finding you out and about at ETH Denver, where can listeners go to learn more about you and the projects that you're working on? Sure. So I, I should be putting more stuff out. Um, my, my handle is J Lawler Cal, the letter J, my first initial Lawler, my last name and Cal for because I'm in California. Um, and that is my handle on WhatsApp, Telegram and uh, what used to be called Twitter. Uh, so that part's pretty simple. Um, and then periodically our firm releases different things on different topics. Um, I do go to a lot of events and speak. Um, and if you're watching this and you're going to be at ETH Denver, or you're going to be at NFT NYC, or you're going to be at Paris Blockchain Week, or you know Token 2049 Dubai, and my calendar goes on and on. Um, that's often a good place to catch me too. Yeah, and I can vouch for it. Josh is Josh is everywhere. So um, hopefully uh, you won't feel intimidated to come up and introduce yourself and, and get to know him and what these guys are doing for the space. Really appreciate your time here today, Josh. Oh, my pleasure, guys. A lot of fun. We've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFT for today. Thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on the Starship. So invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey also much better. How? If you're listening, go to Spotify or iTunes right now. Rate us and say something awesome. Or if you're watching on this YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button and pass this episode on to a friend or two. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for more great Web3 content. Thanks again for sharing this time with us today. The views and opinions expressed on Edge of NFT reflect solely those views and opinions of the show hosts and its guests. Please make sure to do your own research. Our show is not financial advice. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk. Whenever making financial decisions, we recommend doing your own research and talking to your accountant for financial advice. From time to time, we may feature sponsored content on the show for which we receive value, and we may share links for which we receive a commission if you make a purchase through one of those links. Refer to our website, www.edgeofnft.com, for our full disclaimer, terms and conditions, and privacy policy.